Hi, my name is Ming Li, and I'm a HIV and sexual health physician and clinical research fellow at Imperial College London. I'm also an editorial fellow at the Journal of Sexually Transmitted Infections. Today, I'm delighted to be hosting this podcast in place of Dr. Fabiola Martin. Just last month, the long-awaited findings of the ANCHOR study on high-grade squamous intraepithelial lesions in people living with HIV was published in the New England Journal of Medicine. And today, we're very privileged to have Professor Joel Pilewski, Principal Investigator of the ANCHOR study and Professor of Medicine at the University of California, as well as Professor Anna Maria Garetti, Editor-in-Chief of BMJ, Sexually Transmitted Infections, to talk about this study. But before we start, I'd like to invite Anna Maria to say a few words. Thank you, Ming. I've been very much looking forward to today's conversation and the directions it will provide for both clinical practice and further research. Thank you, Anna Maria. And thank you so much for joining us, uh, Professor Pilewski. Would you like to introduce yourself, the ANCHOR study, as well as what it aimed to achieve? Sure. Thank you, firstly, uh, to, to Ming and Anna Maria for inviting me to join on this conversation. So I'm uh, Joel Pilewski. I'm an infectious disease doc at the University of California, San Francisco. And I'm uh, very interested and have been pretty much all my life in uh, my research career in HPV. And um, when we started some of our work, we noticed that uh, with the expansion of the HIV epidemic, we were seeing more and more cases of anal cancer uh, knowing that cervical cancer was one of the AIDS-defining illnesses at the time, and knowing that uh, anal warts were one of the most common STIs in men who have sex with men prior to the HIV epidemic, uh, it set off an alarm bell for me that perhaps we were going to see a similar increase in anal cancer uh, in this setting. And ultimately realized, combined with a growing incidence of anal cancer, that this fear was unfortunately justified. So at that point, we started to plan for what we thought would be perhaps the definitive study to show that we could do something about this problem, namely to see whether treating the precancerous lesion actually would have its intended consequence, which was to reduce the incidence of anal cancer. So that was the reasoning behind the ANCHOR study. ANCHOR is an acronym stands for Anal Cancer H-Cell Outcomes Research Study. And um, knowing that it was going to need to be a big study, it took a number of years of planning and finally was approved uh, for funding by the National Cancer Institute. And so we started recruiting for the study in earnest in 2015. And um, as Anna Maria mentioned, the uh, primary findings were published uh, a few weeks ago in the New England Journal of Medicine, demonstrating that, in fact, treating these anal cancer precursor lesions, high-grade squamous intraepithelial lesions, or HCIL for short, does, in fact, reduce the incidence of anal cancer. Would you mind just describing in a bit more details of what the interventions were, what each um, involved for the participants? Sure. So we felt, first of all, that to generate the kind of quality of evidence that we were hoping for, that it would need to be a randomized controlled trial. And the control, by definition here, needed to be no treatment. Basically, diagnosing on biopsy a high-grade lesion, monitoring it carefully over a period of time without treatment. For comparison, we had an arm in which we didn't specifically 
try to assess one treatment versus the other, but rather assess the treatment strategy. So it was treatment versus no treatment. And within the treatment arm, if a participant was randomized to that arm, the clinician was allowed to pick from a menu of options. Uh, and once they picked one of those options, then they were required to follow a modality-specific treatment algorithm. So they were then brought back at intervals to check for the ongoing presence or absence of HCIL, and the clinician would then perform the next procedure according to the algorithm, perhaps do a retreatment or switch to another therapy if they thought that the first one wasn't working. There was a fair amount of discretion for how long to continue one treatment or the other or switching to another or even the possibility of combining. A few participants in the study had bifurcation plus uh, a topical, but for the most part, the great majority of the participants were treated with just one modality, and that was hyfrication. But ultimately, the goal was to try and eradicate as much HCIL as possible for as long as possible. The intent was that if HCIL didn't respond to the therapy, or if it recurred, or if they had what we call a metachronous lesion, meaning development of a new lesion in a different location, then the intent was to continue to treat. There were times when participants or the clinicians thought it might be good to take a little treatment break. And so if somebody had a recurrent or metachronous HCIL and decided that they wanted to wait a few months until the next treatment, that was permissible also. The goal was to try and replicate the kind of approaches we would take in a real live clinical situation. That's really useful to know, especially the, the finding that most of the participants had hyfrication, which is something you can do in sort of a clinic setting, isn't it? Yeah, and we were, I'd say, quite lucky in this regard because, again, we were not being prescriptive, if you will, about which treatment, but the fact that almost everybody had a hyfrication meant that whatever results we were seeing with respect to reduction in anal cancer could, with some degree of confidence, be ascribed to that particular modality. If, uh, for example, clinicians picked uh, in equal proportions the various treatments, then all we would have been able to say was treatment helps, but probably wouldn't have had enough power to say it's this treatment versus that treatment. 86% of the participants had hyfrication who were in the treatment arm. And so we're saying that for the most part, um, the reduction in anal cancer that we saw was due to the hyfrication and can recommend that as the first line of therapy. You briefly mentioned these key findings of the study earlier, but sort of just because of the importance of the numbers, can you just sort of explain sort of in more details what were the key findings that you found between the treatment arms? Yeah, so uh, we ended up enrolling and following 4,446 people with biopsy-proven high-grade disease, pretty equally divided between the treatment and the monitoring arm. We ended up following people for a median of a little more than 25 months and uh, ended up with an analysis of 30 cases. The way the study was powered, we were going to need to identify 31 cases of anal cancer. We actually notified the Data and Safety Monitoring Board when we reached uh, 32. 
And uh, when all is said and done, we excluded two of those from analysis because we determined after the fact that uh, those two had been diagnosed with anal cancer before randomization. So the final analysis was based on 30 cases and uh, nine of them were in the treatment group, 21 were in the active monitoring group. So that uh, is a statistically significant difference with the reduction of 57% in the treatment arm compared to the monitoring arm. But when all is said and done, it was the difference between the two arms that was really key here. And I think with this kind of um, a result, we have enough to go ahead and start to make uh, standard of care guidelines, knowing that more research is needed to get even better. I think those those numbers are just sort of really impressive. And you, do you think sort of the, the high sort of baseline in the active monitoring arms just reflects the sort of high prevalence of HPV? And we might see a change in that if, you know, with better uptake of HPV vaccinations down the line. Uh, actually, I'd say no to that question because we're, remember here, we're talking about a group of people starting off with age cells. This is not the incidence of cancer in the general population. This is the progression rate to cancer in people who are starting off with age cell. The incidence of anal cancer overall in some studies, particularly in the United States, hover around 100 per 100,000 in MSM, men who have sex with men living with HIV. So you may wonder, why are we four times that number in our study? Well, we actually assumed when we were doing the power calculations that we would see a progression rate of 200 per 100,000 because if 100 per 100,000 were developing cancer in the general population, knowing that the prevalence of H cell is about 50% and assuming that all cancers arise from H cell, we assumed that amongst those with H cell, we would see a progression rate of 200 per 100,000 person years. So the surprise for us was that we were double that. So the thing to remember here is that the prevalence of HCL in the screening population for the study was actually remarkably high as well. Was not our study aim to describe the prevalence of, of disease in the screening population, but we also got quite a lot of important information in that regard. We ended up screening 10,723 men and women living with HIV over the age of 35 in uh, different locations around the United States, but picked to represent the gamut of HIV demographics because the epidemic in, say, San Francisco is different from the epidemic in Miami and, and Puerto Rico. Amongst those 10,723 men and women, we actually found that the prevalence of anal HCL in the men was about 53%, and in the women, about 47%. The numbers in the men were also more or less what we were expecting given prior research. The numbers in the women were very surprising. We were not expecting that much. In fact, when we powered the study originally, we were assuming something closer to 10%, but more recent studies done out of the AIDS Malignancy Consortium showed a number closer to 28% in women living with HIV. And here we show an even higher proportion, closer to about 47%. 
So what this is also telling us is that although we can reduce the progression rate to cancer, the denominator of people who we need to be concerned about is very, very high. And I will remind the listeners that this is a one-time uh, evaluation. This is just a cross-sectional check. That doesn't mean that the roughly other half of the population who didn't have HCL at that visit wouldn't have it in six months or a year. So I couldn't tell you what the cumulative rate of HCL is, but I suspect it's substantially higher than 50%. That brings me to my next question, actually. How frequently do you think we should be performing anal screening in people living with HIV? Okay, so you're asking a lot of different questions there. Um, so first is, should we be performing screening? And I think the answer that Anchor tells us is yes. The second question is who? Because in the United States, for example, there are uh, over a million people living with HIV. The median age is over 50. Should we be screening all 1 million of those individuals? And of course, globally, there are many, many more millions of people living with HIV. We're left with a situation where we need to figure out what the best screening approach is. And I want to be very clear on what I mean by screening, because I think it means different things to different people. To me, when we're talking about screening, we're talking about screening in the more traditional epidemiologic sense of looking for a disease, if you will, in otherwise asymptomatic people. When we think about how to approach this in people living with HIV, I like to divide it into symptomatic and asymptomatic people. If somebody is symptomatic, namely they have anal pain, bleeding, itching, growth of, of new lesions, which are otherwise unexplained by what may be some other common conditions, then I believe that all of those individuals should be referred to a colorectal surgeon, a proctologist, or a general surgeon for further evaluation if necessary. Then we start to talk about people who don't have symptoms. And here, there are two kinds of screening tests. There's what I'm calling the anal cancer screening test, meaning the insertion of your finger into the anal space. It is a version of what we used to call the digital or a digital rectal, but we've modified the name of that. We call it a DARE, D-A-R-E, as opposed to D-R-E, to emphasize the ano, because it is a digital ano rectal exam. The Insertion of a finger used to be aimed primarily at finding rectal cancers and feeling for prostate uh, nodules in men. But it is a very important anal cancer screening test because with your finger, you can feel for hard lumps as opposed to the usual soft things that are very common, which can indicate the presence of a prevalent anal cancer and those individuals who have lesions suspicious for anal cancer should also be referred for further evaluation. If somebody does not have an abnormal DARE and they're symptom, asymptomatic rather, the question is who should go to the next step in screening? So in the cervix, for example, is part of the cervical screening program. We don't send all women for cervical colposcopy, even if they're at risk by virtue of being sexually active, the, the pap smear is the main gatekeeper, if you will, along with co-testing with HPV when that's available to decide who gets colposcopy. And the reason is colposcopy is a very specialized technique. 
A lot of people don't know how to do it, so there's a limited number of providers. It's expensive. The whole purpose of the first level of screening tests is to decide who gets colposcopy. We have the same situation with anal disease, but even worse in a sense, because high-resolution anoscopy, which is the primary technique that we use to establish the diagnosis based on histology and to guide treatment under visualization, is a very challenging technique to learn, harder in many ways than cervical colposcopy, which also takes a lot of time. So the number of providers who are skilled in HRA is very limited. And obviously, we cannot send everybody who's at risk with HIV for HRA. So we need a screening test or a combination of tests upstream of HRA, equivalent to the cervical screening approach to apply in this situation. And here is another one of those areas that we're calling data deserts because uh, there really is not a sufficient amount of information in this regard to make definitive recommendations. There are some data out there. We have some reasonable guesses as to what might be the optimal approach, but there's still a lot more information that needs to be obtained. And Anchor is actually going to help us with that because one of the other goals of the Anchor study was to create a biorepository of specimens collected from people at screening and after randomization that would inform several different important clinical points. For example, the screening population gives us a very broad range of results that we can apply the swabs that we took at the same time to try and figure out what is the best test to identify, say, an age cell with the best positive predictive value. So that specimen set, I think, will be very informative. But for now, we're using the existing literature to make um, best guesstimates for what a screening test might look like. And for now, at least, we are considering the use of anal cytology and HPV co-testing when that is available. Ultimately, what we're trying to do is make sure that the people who most need HRA make their way to HRA and that the people who don't need HRA are safely followed uh, with other techniques. Thank you. That's really, really enlightening overview of uh, current self-gaps and strategies for anal cancer screening. Do you have any final words for us? I do have some final words. This is still a very young emerging field. And for any listeners out there who are trying to think about doing something important and stimulating as a career choice, and I'm aiming these comments specifically to younger people, residents, fellows, call us because we think we have some really important work for you to do, which is very satisfying. Thank you, Joel. Anna-Maria, do you have any questions or any final words you'd like to say as well? I would like to say thank you very much for this uh, precious insights, Joel, and, and also for highlighting the many researcher needs related to pathogenesis, as you said, and also to improving treatment and prevention of breakthroughs. And importantly, the, the, the issues related to implementation of optimal screening strategies in men and women with and without symptoms and in diverse settings. 
and thank you for introducing the concept of there. I would like to conclude by saying that our um, STI journal will welcome submissions that uh, aim to address questions and uh, views around these um, topics. Thank you very much. Thank you for both for joining and tune in next time for the next uh, podcast. Bye.